Good afternoon, how are we all? Well, you guys are super chipper for a Sunday. Did everyone have a sensible night last night? Uh, murmur, I'm murmur, not believing murmur. a single one of them. No, no, yeah, it's fine. Um, so welcome to the panel on directing VR. Um, I have to say personally, I am really excited to uh, talk to, well, actually, I've, I've got like, I feel like I've got the biggest panel with like the widest range of sort of experience uh, in terms of VR. And as someone who's like super passionate about it, well, in terms of consuming it. Um, I'm really excited to, you know, finally get to kind of ask some questions because we've literally got every angle covered here. If there's, a, if there's a VR angle, we have it covered. So do kind of um, have a think as we go on of any questions that you want to ask and we'll have a little bit of time at the end just in case I don't cover any ground that, uh, that you want us to. So I think we should just kick off maybe. If we just go down the line, if you want to um, uh, yeah, just sort of say who you are, who you work for and kind of where your sort of area of expertise is. Sure. Uh, I'm Greg Ferber. I'm a creative director and VR director at Rewind. We're one of the largest VR production companies in the UK, specialising in kind of all aspects of uh, VR, from 360 video through to real-time game engine-based uh, experiences. And I've been doing it for, as a company for about four years, and I've been with Rewind for about two years. Awesome. Hello. Um, I'm Tanya. Uh, I own the company Digital Jam, and we work all across all variety of the games and entertainment industry, but also the technology industry um, under VR. But the key area of interest of where we kind of sit is that we aren't just about entertainment VR. I'm Katie Good, a creative director of Triangle Pixels, and uh, we're being known for the BAFTA-nominated Unseen Diplomacy, uh, which is out for HTC Vive. And Go on in. <laughs> uh, uh, my name is John Campbell. I am technical director at Triangle Pixels. Um, I specialize in player interaction and gameplay. Hi, all. My name is Darius, uh, and I'm the senior producer at Rocksteady Studios, and I work on the production side and Arkham VR. Uh, I'm Liz McCurry. Um, I'm an evangelist at Unity. Uh, so we have a platform for you to be able to make your VR experiences quite easily. Um, but I'm here from more of an academic perspective. I recently was a BAFTA scholar um, where I did a master's in computer game software development and my research focus was virtual reality and horror. Um, and I was also a marketing intern on Arkham VR as well. Yep. So yes. Everyone knows everyone, basically, <laughs> is what you'll come to realise. It's very, very small. Um, so I think it'd be quite interesting uh, just to kind of kick off before we kind of delve uh, a little bit deeper into it. It's just sort of how you perhaps you got into, got into games, because everyone's always got a really weird story, and I just like hearing them. So how about you, Greg? Uh, so I actually started off working in stock frame feature films as an assistant director in the story department on Fantastic Mr. Fox and Frank and Weenie and a few others, and then worked as a commercials director uh, an animatics director for a couple of years, um, and through that got to know the guys at Rewind. When I'd had enough of doing commercials and wanted to try something different, kind of just blagged my way in. <laughs> and um, particularly took an interest in 360 video, uh, and from there I've moved into doing uh, VR production as well, so kind of the more of the experience-based stuff rather than kind of proper video games, but I've just kind of worked from the, the start of animation all the way through to the kind of the most modern version now, which is pretty exciting. So do you mean how I got into games or how I got into VR? Because they're two different stories. Oh, okay, no, games. <laughs> we'll start with games and then we'll work to VR. Okay, so in the games industry, actually, I ended up being railroaded into the games industry. <laughs> it was not my intent, as most people who've got into the commercial side of the games industry, who are not coders or developers, will tell you that they got there purely by accident. It was never intended. Well, that's exactly what happened to me, where somebody I knew basically said, you have to try for this job as a global product manager at this studio. And I was like... 
I have no idea what you've been talking, you know, you're rambling about. And I walked in and I did an interview with the game studio who should remain nameless, but anybody who knows me knows who it was. And I knew nothing about gaming, I knew nothing about sci-fi, and it was for a major MMO sci-fi title, and I knew nothing. I literally walked in and was just, well, if I was going to market this thing, I would do X, Y, and Z. And they hired me. And it's all the art of the blag is what you're saying. <laughs> just go in I and no blag it. I have no idea why you've hired me. And the very first time I had to play the game, it was hilarious because I didn't know how to play the game. That's how bad it was. They actually hired me without actually knowing how to play the game. And I had to go in there as a mod. And because it's very obvious when you're a mod, everybody basically dived bombed me, all the fans. And I basically said something really stupid, which was, leave me alone, I'm a noob. And, and it was YouTube, and on YouTube within five minutes, that the latest mod had just done this. And I was like, okay, thanks for that intro into the games industry, folks. So that's me. Uh, I guess, uh, actually, so I did physics and space research at Birmingham University, um, which is sort of, yeah, rocket science, and decided that Designing spacecraft meant that I'd spend 10, maybe 15 years of my life designing one thing, and then I could put it on top of a rocket, and then that rocket could explode. So I was like, eh, okay, no. Games is much more interesting and fun and creative and arty. And so um, actually, I wasn't really in for an interview with Frontier. They just sort of took me around their office, because you know, I went up to them and said, I am a girl, I love games, I've done programming in my course. I've done spacecraft design stuff, and also I do art in my spare time. And didn't really know what I wanted to be, and then they sort of showed me the designer position. I was like, oh, that's exactly what I'm after. Um, but then I was just criticizing them on their game as I was walking around their studio. <laughs> and they just hired me as a designer, because it's like, oh, yeah, you clearly know how to fix this up. <laughs> And worked at Frontier, but never got to work at Elite, despite yes. having a degree in space. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I did a degree in computer science, and while I was doing that, I hung around on a forum for fans of Jeff Minter, uh, which, if you know him, does particularly psychedelic games, uh, most recently released TKX on the Vita. Um, turns out one of the other person there uh, worked at London, Sony's London studio, and when I finished my degree, they just asked me to apply. Uh, so they then went to London studio and worked there for 10 years. I basically just wanted to get paid playing games. <laughs> <laughs> it's it not as interesting as that. So yeah, I just sort of looked at the time of, right, how do I get into the games industry, and QA just came up. So I just tested my way into production, basically, and then just stayed in production from there. So yeah, you can actually make a living making games. So I was there straight away. Um, I started off in web development. So I used to do like passport control systems for hospitals. Um, and uh, I absolutely loved programming. And I loved the development environment. But I just love games. So that's why I went back and did masters and sort of retrained um, and got here. So yeah. How did you then make the next step into VR? What kind of happened? What was the sort of turning point? I mean, for me, it's, it's quite short. I joined a company that was specialising in VR, and so we've been doing it ever since. Had to kind of relearn how to shoot and direct from traditional ways to 360, because as I found out on my first shoot, the rules are completely different, and if you stick to the old rules, it's going to look shit. Really shit, and make people feel unwell. Uh, and then from... Uh, made some people sick. I made me very sick, because oh, I did it experimenting, okay. so that's fine. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, from there, kind of haven't looked back. And as the company's grown, the, the scale of the projects we're working on has grown. And thankfully, our kind of uh, learning happened at the start of the industry. So as the industry's growing and the jobs are becoming higher profile and the projects becoming massive budgets and massive IPs, 
uh, we've got our mistakes and our learning out the way and are hopefully delivering great content with, uh, with great brands and IP. Zing. Yeah, it's good. By the way, I totally think that it's like a bad badge of honor in the VR industry if you're in development that you've made yourself sick at some point. Yeah. So <laughs> if you haven't vomited, you've really not, not, yeah, you're not, you're not in it enough. Um, in terms of how did I get into VR, um, ironically, uh, it, it, for, for people, most people who are coming into the VR industry, they're coming in within the last five years. And so for a lot of people, when you say VR, they think you mean HMD. They think you mean Rift and Oculus and, and those types of VR. And interestingly, before any of that happened, so I've, I've been in the games industry for the last decade, um, before any of that happened, there were a lot of people who were coming and talking to me about franchise and transmedia and lots of stuff where actually they needed to understand the expertise of different vertical industries and how all of these things actually fed into each other. And so one of the areas of interest has always been in what we would have called immersive or, or synthetic worlds, which is basically VR. And so when people started wanting people to talk about VR in a public forum, I found that a lot of people were coming to me and saying, so you seem to know about this stuff that does this thing, and it's like, yes, that's what you're calling VR, but other people might call it synthetic worlds. And so I found myself kind of just talking about it an awful lot and just sharing those learnings, because actually it's not a new industry. It's been around for at least three decades, and so there's a lot of learning that already exists. It just so happens that for people who are coming at it from a games industry perspective, most of that learning is coming within the last five, kind of six years or so, but that knowledge and learning has been around for at least 30 years. Do you feel a little bit like uh, one of those people who's like, I, I like that band before they were cool? <laughs> very, very much so, definitely. It's VR. <laughs> like, yeah, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, guys. It already exists. The wheel is already there. Just make it shiny. Uh, for, well, I guess us two, because yeah, it happened at the same time. Uh, we're both working at Solon Studio together on uh, Wonderbook. Uh, so that was augmented reality platform, which is a physical book with uh, codes that are printed on it, and you connect up a camera to your PS3, and you have a move controller, and it's like the original use of the move controller. Oh. Uh, and then uh, you can actually cast spells, and the book will come to life, and that was really, really cool, and basically we just really enjoyed working together, and then sort of, you know, sort of got together and got married and things. I just have a fat in that. But um, we then sort of, like, this obviously this VR came along and it was like the really early days at Sunland Studio still. Um, so it turned into PlayStation Worlds. Uh, but at that point, it's still the Morpheus and the original Oculus DK1 was there. And, like, we just both really wanted to work in this. Like, in terms of designer, it's such an amazing creative space and it's so fresh and new for us. Sorry. Okay. New for me, <laughs> that there were so much possibilities and so many different things that we could do. Um, and so we were going home, working, going to work, working, and eventually we just decided to, like, it just got to the point, so critical mass, so it's like, drop everything. We're going to have to just work on our own game in our own time. And so we moved out to Cornwall, didn't we? And Set up our own studio. Yeah. There was also, to a certain extent, a frustration with... Uh, how slow the mainstream games industry was working with VR. Uh, we had this brand new hardware that was exciting and had circuit boards still sticking out of it and held together with duct tape. And it was still very much trying to crowbar the old genres into this new hardware. And uh, we had so many things we wanted to try out because specializing in like gameplay and interactions, but we're just not getting anywhere at the, the mainstream places. Uh, hence, wants to kind of fork off on our own. Talking of mainstream places, 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, for us, it was, uh, we sort of finished Arkham Knight and we were sort of looking at ideas and, and it kind of became a sort of experiment and sort of opportunity at the same time. So we started looking at this new technology and we just thought to ourselves it'd be a great you know, opportunity to kind of do a new type of Batman game. And uh, Warner Brothers at the time were really supportive of that as well. So we just kind of just pursued it and it just kind of unraveled from there and just became this, this massive title in the studio for us and a real passion project. But who doesn't um, want to be Batman? I mean, exactly. that's literally I why mean, we play Batman games, we is to be Batman. So if I can be more Batman than I was before, that's an improvement. Be the, yeah, be the Batman, basically. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's kind of where we went from it. Um, for me, I think, when I went back and started doing my Masters, um, and it was in computer game programming, um, it was a really cool time for me, because I was sort of, from sort of loving games, from being young and coming through, it, it, I, thought, I felt it was always a sticking point. It was, games were never really a viable career option from when I was growing up and I was doing my A-levels and that kind of thing and going off to uni. So when I started doing my master's and I saw that there was so much more that was becoming accessible, so our university was getting these headsets and we were having these developer forums that we could look at and learn from, um, that it was just really new and exciting. And I was just like, wow, okay, so games are a viable career option now. Universities and, and like professionals are investing in this new wave of talent that are coming through. And so I just wanted to get my hands on virtual reality, really. I was sort of like had my foundation of programming and I was like, right, this is the next thing I want to get involved with. So, um, yeah, that's how I saw it. It was like a natural progression in... Um, and then, obviously, the horror spurred it on because I thought, how can I scare people with this? How can you traumatise them? How can I traumatise my friends was the underlying... Uh, That's just a thing. daily thing for me. I don't make games. <laughs> how can I traumatise my friends? Um, so, I mean, what would you say... Uh, obviously, Tanya touched a little bit upon it there, but, like, some of the sort of big... Um, like, what, what are some of the things that you'd sort of like to demystify right now, do you think? God, I, know, I know you're itching to jump in, so I'll just get this out of the way now. I'm only saying this because I've been to a lot of events, perhaps in this building, I'm not saying anything particular. No cameras, good. Um, but there is this common misconception of the basic terminology of VR and what does it actually mean. So if you speak to somebody from different industry, the, the, the phrase VR means something different. So if you speak to somebody from the film industry and you say VR, what they really mean is 360 film. If you speak to somebody in the games industry and you say VR, they actually mean a game. And, you know, it depends on where somebody comes from as to what VR actually means. So I find it's always really helpful just at the outset of the conversation to just kind of clarify what do you mean by VR. Because I've been in a conversation before with somebody where we, we were deep in conversation about the distribution of a new film. And they, they said, oh, yeah, we've done it in VR as well. And I was like, brilliant. I've not heard anybody doing a full length, you know, full feature in VR is going to the cinemas. Great, tell me more. And, there, and we're kind of halfway into the conversation, about half an hour later, it, it actually came out that what she was referring to was uh, an, a, a, a particular type of cinema, which is not dissimilar to an IMAX, which happens to have a, a wraparound of about 180 degrees. Not even and, 360. And I was <laughs> kind of like, what the heck she was talking about? I was kind of like, really? You, okay, that's not really what I would classify as VR, but you know. Everybody has a different perception of what it means, and I think clarification of term terminology is probably the single biggest issue that you have when you're talking to people about what VR is, and just understanding and being on the same page. That's really true about what you've just said, because when I was telling my mum about virtual reality, her, um, what had informed my mum's perception of virtual reality was all sort of like the sci-fi films that she used to watch, <laughs> um, like The Matrix and Lawnmower Man. So when I was like, I've got this Google Cardboard, do you want to try VR? She was like, absolutely never. <laughs> I was like, well, after the and I was like, come on, just like, and it was like the Google um, like dashboard with the fox on top of the mountain. Yeah. It was really chill. And I was like, just try it. And she was just like, oh. 
this is, this is really cool. Um, but I wouldn't say my mum's a VR convert, but uh, she's not as afraid. She got back from the Matrix. She's I'm, I'm just like super disappointed that after watching loads of 80s films that when you try and like go onto the internet it's not like all like animated graphics of like skull and crossbones if you like put in the wrong password why, why does that never happen um yeah is there anything else anyone else wanted? one yeah uh vr is an anti-social activity oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just vent do it right now so i mean okay first of all if you are having a kit and someone's playing on that kit in front of you and together you're sitting around laughing and joking, that is still sociable. Yeah. Um, people sharing videos of each other on YouTube, like, oh, that, this is still social activity. Obviously, you've got online multiplayer, like VR devices, being able to actually network and talk to each other over the internet, still sociable. But we're doing like really cool, interesting stuff with people within the same room joining in with the same game. Yeah. And like just through the TV or through their voice, like keep talking, nobody exposed, yeah. which is like the one that everybody really knows of. And it shows it's like there is this possibility here. It's just a case of how we design the activities. So with Unseen Diplomacy, that was actually originally a live action game. Um, we had the HTC Vive in the room. It was decorated, wasn't it, like a sort of spy base who had hired actors as spies. And if you were in the room, you were actually playing the game. Um, and so, like, we brought out all these different devices so people could sort of join in and things. But it was like, it can be sociable. Uh, like, it's just a matter of how you design that experience. I, I, I'm going to build on what Kate's saying because it's so important that people understand that VR isn't about being in a black box. And at the moment, there's a lot of people whose understanding of VR is I've got to put a black box on front, you know, a goggles on my face in order to be in VR. And it's just not the case. So, by show of hands, first of all, who's watched Buster Mars? In this room? <laughs> Seriously, people. Okay. Go to. I know. It's, it's got, you're one of those audiences. Okay. Go to YouTube, look it up. Buster Mars by Lockhead Martin. It was done by our good friends here at Framestore here in the UK. And it's a, a great example of social shared collaborative VR. So basically, a school bus in, in uh, America, they replaced all of the windows with uh, super thin displays. And they created a virtual reality environment of the surface of Mars. And then those kids were able to get into the bus, drive around New York wherever they were driving around, they turned on all of the displays as they went through a tunnel, and suddenly they're on the surface of Mars. And they're able to direct the driver and say, you know, we want to go explore that mountain over there, or there's a, there's a, a you know, a storm system coming in, and we're about to get caught in the storm. Quick, let's get away from it. And they're able to share this social, collaborative experience together within the bus. No, no goggles, no headsets required to be able to have that collaborative experience. So if you look at what's happening in the theme park industries, if you look at what's happening in the immersive theatre industries, there's a lot of this, this type of use of technology where it doesn't require you to be in this little headset and nobody else can see what you're seeing. It's actually a shared collaborative VR experience. So I really urge you to go have a look and, and look at some of these experiences that are not about just being in a headset. You look like you're no. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it's, I suppose it's a similar when obviously there's kind of new technology. It's like the way things have always done before, they just then apply the same format. So people, it's very difficult for people to think of other ways that it work. But also people are quite unobservant with other applications of it. So I suppose it's sort of, you know, if, if VR is something you want to go into, it's sort of almost your job to be like evangelical and talk about those kind of different experiences. Um, I suppose one thing I'd like to touch upon as well is obviously, you know, you've got quite kind of uh, different sort of varied backgrounds. And obviously there are the key things that are, you know, the cornerstone of what your job is. But have you actually used anything, you know, from previous jobs that you thought was quite an unrelated experience but have now been able to use it in VR? 
Uh, I think for me the biggest surprise was I tried to make 360 video as my graduation piece 10 years ago where I was trying to get 10 cameras and put them in a loop and then do playback on multiple screens. And I went down this rabbit hole where the technology to do it was not possible because I graduated, I think, 2004, 2005. And the, the cost and the, just the hardware required would have cost more than my degree. And now <laughs> for, I mean, if you buy a theatre for 120 quid, you can start doing these things that were just so so separate from what was possible uh, 10 years ago for me. I, so that for me was the biggest surprise, I think, realising that I'd actually tried to do this a while ago and then come back round to it, and it's, it's now just not just a, a thing you can do, it's a thing that is becoming one of the, the, the biggest industries in the next five, ten years. You're just born at the wrong time. Yeah. <laughs> Ahead of your time. Yeah. Ahead of your I time. Think, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, we're in the car this morning, weren't we? Go on. Well, I, for me, um, for both of us, uh, when we were working on Wunderbook, which was augmented reality with the PlayStation Move controllers, at the time, it was pretty late in the day for the move control, it was already considered a dead end. And we were still, at that point, trying to figure out how you control a game with a thing that you can move in 3D space and the, the kind of proper tracked gestures that was a step above the kind of the wee waggle at the time. Um, yeah, I think, sorry. No, please, no, please, no. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was just thinking back, actually, I made a few Wii titles in the past as well, and, you know, that obviously used motion controls, and then there was a lot of, at the time, you know, wanting to advance that a little bit more, and so now coming into a platform where you, you could, you know, the options are, are endless in a lot of ways, so we were, you know, there were things that we that I've wanted to do then, that we tried uh, this time around, which was pretty good, in terms of the interactions and the mechanics that we can make, so I think the Wii, my Wii learnings from then were, were pretty good. You could see a lot of, of Wii games really struggling with yeah, this Yeah, I just, I just remember being kind of slightly just... disappointed when that came out and not being as... Skyward Sword and Battle. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and now you've got this kind of full motion. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was something for me. I think one of the cool things uh, like coming straight into the industry from academia was... Um, I, so my internship was at Rocksteady, um, and I'd done all my research in virtual reality, and I'd sort of been doing my master's part-time for two years, and sort of got to the end of it, and was like, so this is all this stuff that I've been researching, these are all the conclusions that I've made, um, it's probably just going to be redundant in, in a year's time, but I enjoyed doing it. And then I came into the studio, and I remember playing Arkham VR for the first time, and I just went absolutely mental, because... And I remember... running down the office. <laughs> literally, it literally was. Um, and it's probably a good job that Jamie wasn't in that day, because I emailed him, and I was like, this is amazing, all these, like, conclusions that I've come to in my research, you guys have just implemented, and it's just perfect, and it's just wonderful, and I just feel like my work has not been wasted. So it was just amazing to sort of the progression, like you guys have said that you worked with this tech a long time ago and you've seen it sort of iterate, you know, as an academic it was just really nice to see it coming through like in, in use, it was awesome, yeah. So I suppose we should probably jump on to um, like what are some of the unique challenges of, you know, making VR and directing VR, like I'll just go straight down the line because I'm sure you've all got some thoughts that you'd like to share, I think it's the title of the panel, maybe we should ask that question. Uh, so I work across both 360 video and TrueVR. Um, I am one of the people that will annoy you by just lumping it all together for VR. Out, <laughs> genuinely out of 
laziness for having to explain that pedantry every single time. So I'm like, fine, if it's in a headset, it's VR. The school bus was an issue for our office where yep. they just tore a line down the middle of it. Everyone going, that's not VR. And everyone's going, but it, but it is. is. But it is. Um, I'm on your side, it's totally VR. But um, 360 video, having been a traditional director for years before coming into it, uh, having worked on about 250 commercials, I had to learn, we learned how to shoot, how to edit, what works, what doesn't work. The, the language of film is 120-ish years old. In 360 video, you can't edit in the same way, you can't jump around the scene in the same way, you can't start with an establishing shot, cut to an over the shoulder, have a two shot, have a mid, have a close up to tell different things. Everything has to be done in, usually in a single take. Uh, so you want to be using theater actors, not screen actors, because if you've ever seen a a screen actor have to do more than a two minute take, you're in for a treat of a meltdown. Um, I have videos I can't show you, but they are hilarious. Um, and it's, it's relearning those rules because actually when someone's in a headset, particularly you can make them feel massively unwell just using the things that would be the normal way of doing things. So there's a whole new language of uh, cinematography and editing to learn. With Could you just give us a couple of examples, you think? Well, so camera movement is a massive part. You know, everyone knows that a very subtle, gentle pushing is a really nice way to draw someone into a frame. But if you did that in VR, you've got a really subtle way of making someone feel a little bit sick. Um, Editing-wise, you're not if you're doing a 30-second commercial in 360 video, you're probably doing a single take, uh, two takes, two shots at most, because actually you can't jump around because people need time in a scene to feel comfortable and nested and understand what's going on. And if you suddenly jump them around from shot to shot, location to location, even within the same room. They start to feel overwhelmed and just shut down to what you're doing. So the, just the whole way of approaching it is much closer to the way people were shooting things when they were trying to shoot 1920s expressionism and kind of bring uh, effectively theatre to the screen. Motion through frame, lighting, positional audio, all of those kind of things can be used to guide someone in, in an experience to where you need them to be looking. We've got a, a spacewalk uh, piece called Home. And there's a key moment where it's absolutely essential that you're looking at exactly that point of the frame at exactly the right time, otherwise you're going to miss one of the key moments. And the way we do that is have a camera that you're supposed to get out of a box, and it floats up, and you're trying to grab it, and it's actually impossible to grab it, but the player doesn't know that, they think they've missed. But because you're looking there, the asteroid that shoots through frame is exactly where you're, where you're looking. So there are just a kind of a raft of techniques and tricks you have to use to make people look where you want them to be looking and engaging with it, knowing that when they're looking at that things act, uh, as well as using kind of uh, hot point hotspots and stuff like that. So knowing that when they're looking at that things activate to make sure that those key moments that you want people to feel are discovered organically and freely and in their own time, uh, that you're actually in control of them and they're just your rat in a maze, um, which is fun. It's, it's really exciting, though. Is it not really exciting? Because you're kind of it's, rewriting it's, sort of the, the language in a way. Uh, it's exciting, it's terrifying, and it's exhausting all at once. <laughs> Slightly <laughs> nausea-inducing. Um, it's fun. It's like a lot all fun. good first dates. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. It's, it's <laughs> finding this path uh, that you know should be there and know there's a way to get the outcome you want, but trying to figure it out and make people feel like they've not been tricked into doing what you want them to do, I think is the, the biggest challenge and the difference between a piece that people feel they had this amazing, they were at the heart of a story that unfolded around them 
uh, and they were kind of the, the linchpin of the story and just sitting on a roller coaster and a lot of the early DK1 stuff was a roller coaster. And you know what? A lot of the, the CV1 stuff and, the, and the, the Vive stuff is secretly a roller coaster, but where you feel like you're driving the car and it makes just a, a raft of difference in terms of engagement, enjoyment and creating something that people are actually going to want to spend 800 pounds on a headset two grand on a pc and then 10 pound on your thing it's amazing how people will spend three grand and then begrudge you 9.99 for a title <laughs> like like i'm sure you're all of the iphone users in here are going i spent a thousand pounds on this phone i'm not sure i want to spend 199 on that app uh, and that's the i think the the biggest challenge we're trying to overcome as well is that the people have this insanely powerful toy that they've spent way too much money on let's be honest and yet they're quibbling over 9.99 and expect it for free and all that kind of thing. It's it's maddening. I feel like this is like a moderate therapy session for most of our panelists. Just like if you just want to rent your frustrations at the end, that's fine. Yeah. I'm going to pick up on a few points that were said here because first of all, in terms of the how much are people willing to spend thing, I do think that that's actually a perception issue uh, yeah. around the value and quality of what VR actually is. And and because it's so fragmented at the moment, where people are creating mobile content versus true VR, you know, gaming headset content tethered concept, whatever you want to call it. I mean, at both ends of that spectrum, the pricing is quite different. But going back to the directing piece, um, so first of all, in terms of what, what is one of the things that, that is most important to understand fundamentally from the outset is all about understanding how you articulate agency to your audience. And as a director, that has to be one of the first things that you need to decide is, is this a piece where actually my audience does have agency? Is this a roller coaster? Is this a, you know, sit inside the car with your hands inside the vehicle and we will take you where you need to go? Or is this actually something where they can get out and they can sandbox it and they can interact with all of the points around them? And these are two very different types of experience which which require two very different types and styles and approach to directing. Um, so that, that's kind of one thing that I would say to start off with. Then the other kind of area that I think is, is quite interesting to note as well is just in terms of this terminology, and, and as you were kind of saying, it's like you're reinventing this, this whole new terminology for things. Um, the thing is, is that there are other industries, such as the immersive theatre industry or the theatre industry, where actually, you know, they, they are pretty good at this stuff. You know, first of all, they, they, they understand how to go the entire show without any cuts, you know, without, let's do another retake of that. You know, they understand how to, how to actually perform for VR, and that is actually a skill unto itself. Is a lot of people don't realize that performing for a 360 film or performing for VR um, is a very, very different skill set to somebody who is traditionally a TV actor or a film actor or even just a traditional theater actor. How is it different? What, what different? So, as a for example, you aren't, you aren't looking at it from a, I'm gonna take, I've got this frame and I'm gonna put you in this frame and you're gonna do this piece of action and you're gonna do it to camera or you're gonna do it to that point over there or whatever that thing is. But also, by the by, we're gonna cut shots in between so you you need to make sure that you're going to hit that mark over there and you're going to hit that mark over there. The problem is, is that when you're doing 360, it's not just the actor who needs to understand the fact that anybody can be looking from any angle at any point because they can walk around you, essentially, and they can you know, lean in deeper or, or lean back or, or completely ignore you, um, you know, depending on what they want to do. Um, but also all the people who are, who are doing all the other peripheral um, you know, pieces around that in terms of the lighting, um, you know, binaural or 360 sound, or all of those other elements need to understand. If you're doing a live live action capture, 
you don't get a chance to reset that. You know, you do it and it's got to be one take. So if you're going to do it, you need to be really, really clear on the articulation from a writer's perspective and a, a kind of a narrative perspective, understanding from the very first get-go, what are the options here? Now, there are some people who are experimenting with this from an immersive theatre side of, this, of the perspective, which means it makes it even more complex for an actor. Because the actor actually has to understand what the three or four different outcomes are to each interaction. So for each interaction point, there is a possibility of multiple outcomes. And so they have to remember, like, it's like a little multi-layered you know, script in their head that they've got to remember all that stuff and be able to deliver that based on what's being recorded at the time. Yeah. So the, 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 it's a very particular skill set and is, is much more of a, a hybrid between immersive theatre acting and motion capture acting than it is necessarily, I've got this big screen and you care about my emotions on my face. <laughs> it's kind of, no, your whole body really matters and what you're doing with your body really matters. And as a director, understanding how to interact and articulate that to an actor and take them on that journey with you is a big thing because, as you say, a lot of them have a bit of a meltdown. Oh, yeah. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, do you think, obviously, because it's still kind of in its infancy, uh, in the same way... Um, do you remember, like, in the original games when they first started putting in, like, FMV, right? Yeah. 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 And everyone yeah. was, like, very much like, I am over here and I'm in a video game, so I'll talk, like, really weirdly. Mm. Um, but do you think it's just going to come... It's just naturally just going to come with time? Like, you're just going to have uh, actors who are kind of more adept and they get a better understanding of what it's going to mean? I think that there will be, we'll see probably emerging within the next three years or so, we're going to start to see specific schools of acting for this type of performance because it is a hybrid performance. It's using different techniques from different, uh, you know, traditional methodologies, whatever you want to call it. But also you're going to start to see people who will re represent that talent in different ways. So at the moment you have, uh, you know, an, uh, an agent who will be um, representing a film or TV talent. We're going to start to see that for VR, but that won't just mean performance. That's going to mean other things like directing and producing and and all these other things but traditionally you know in the games industry we don't get represented in that way you know even somebody who's a games writer doesn't necessarily have an agent there's a very small handful of people who do let's be honest and the way that that, that currently is the the industries perceive people from different verticals is very different so it's going to be interesting to see how you know, agencies and, and, and contracts emerge that allow people to be represented within these industries in different ways. We're, we're currently casting a VR project and we need 10 motion capture actors who could be a completely compelling lead in a film, but also be able to do a, effectively a 10-minute piece uh, and not deviate from it and hit certain cues so we can do motion capture in as minimal takes as possible. The casting is a nightmare. Yeah. The 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 blocking is a nightmare. Everything is a nightmare, and it's it's really exciting. <laughs> well, like it's, well, it's you're it's not selling the dream here at all. Yeah, to help me. You know no, what it's do. it's well, maybe 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 it's motion capture that is going in game engine. I couldn't really yeah. say, but um, the, the the finding that talent and the people with that skill set is is super challenging. Like you're saying, yeah. I do think that agencies will emerge and we, like I've got casting directors I've worked with when I used to do commercials and films. And thankfully some of them are the... I'll, I'll let you know a few people. Yeah, but they're the shotgun approach. They've got everything from like the, a top level actor through to uh, a fire breather. Mm. And those people seem to have the right kind of people on their books. <laughs> I think they just yeah. need to specialize. Yeah.
basically. If, you, if you're training at all, you want to become an actor. I think just get in there now, really. Okay. Honestly, there, there's such a small pool. It's like if you want to be an actor for immersive film or, or, or kind of immersive entertainment well, format, parts. you are literally, you are a big, very big fish in a very small pond right now. Yeah. Because there are not a huge amount of actors. Even if you go to somebody like, okay, I'll name names. But let's just say you're Chris Milk and you're using, you know, Charlize Theron and, and you know, Michael Fassbender and all these other big actors who basically floated around a camera, which was lovely, but they weren't acting for VR. They weren't actually... You couldn't interact with them, per se. And so there aren't these big-name actors who can necessarily do this stuff. Mm. So you're actually in a really small minority right now, and getting out there and contacting and reaching out to the big agencies to represent you is now is the time, because within the next now to five years' time is when all of the big, you know, APAs and, you know, CPAs and all those kind of people are going to be looking and saying, well, who can we hire, you know, who can we sign up? Because the industries, whether it's the games industry or the film industry who's doing VR, are going to be looking for that kind of high-end talent. And it's also, like, really expensive time-wise, I would imagine, as well. It's like, could you just get it in one? Could you? That'd be super useful, thanks. Uh, direct from games, uh, I mean, obviously, we're coming from quite a different background where I guess it's the same in the sense that we're sort of framing shots and things and all sorts, but the player ultimately is the person that's driving the interaction, and suddenly now, from our perspective, we can't make assumptions of who the player is. Uh, before, we knew that there was always one way they're going to be interacting, and that's through a controller, and we can pretend they're whoever, we just give them a context of a few cutscenes and they can suddenly be Nathan Drake. But now, if we're asking a player to physically move around and do those things themselves and force them into a body that isn't their own and things like that, then suddenly that's like bringing up a whole new sense of feelings. And also, from a practicality point of view, for our game, uh, we were getting people to do a physical assault course. Like, you're physically crawling on, through the floor, like on the floor, rolling underneath lasers, and so we were making lots of assumptions about the fact that people can actually do that. Mm. You know, got people in wheelchairs that can't necessarily do that, and people with hidden disabilities. So we actually actually designing the mode. So if you if we did have a player in a wheelchair come up to want to play the game, then they could still play the game, and still have a really good time with it. We just changed the height of a few things and things. Uh, so I mean, even things like when we first originally launched, um, we get people to sort of stand inside a box, and they needed to have uh, the two controllers in the headset. And it's like, oh, but what if they've only got one hand? Like, there was no reason for us technically to have to do that. So we took that out, and so we can allow people to actually go in. So rather than just accessibility with how they might press buttons, which can be via button remapping, or through visual and audio clues, it's now also the height of someone, um, how they move around, how fast they can move around, what appendages are like, what actual arms and legs they've got. Um, so that's really quite hard from UX point of view, um, because like something like 15% of the population is actually disabled in some way. So it's quite hard for us. Um, and I think every single one of those options we've added to broaden the accessibility has paid off in some unexpected way uh, at some point. So because mm -hmm. we've often been at trade shows like EGX, and you have to put hundreds of people through, which is exhausting but incredibly fun. And you just you see somebody in the queue, and you go, oh, how, how are they going to handle this? Like, there's a guy with a sling. And we're like, all right, oh, it's OK, because we've got it. You can only use one controller now. And every accessibility has paid off in an unexpected way. 
And actually, what, I, what I, I found also quite interesting is that uh, actually, you know, people with disabilities tend to be drawn towards uh, gaming quite a lot. Mm. Anyway, just because obviously it provides an experience perhaps they may not be able to have. A sp and I can certainly see, you know, something like VR, why if you were, you know, not so physically abled, why you'd want to do that. Do you remember being at like an event once and... Um, I was going around with a like, disabled friend of mine who only had one eye, like one workable eye, and they only had like 3D versions of this game, and I was like, guys, <laughs> you couldn't have just set up like one TV with so, because he's like, yeah. he's trying to, it's, and it's a shooter as well, so yeah. isn't it? it's got to like, you know, aim properly, but it's just, people don't really have that kind of foresight, I suppose. I just want to throw on, though, to, to what these guys are saying, because actually this is one of those classic examples of not realising what you've got, which is that these guys are working on accessibility options, and actually, for the mainstream population who are going to start learning about VR and getting into VR, they're not gamers. They don't understand all the console button thing, and they don't want to button bash. And actually, by developing these console, uh, control systems and these UXs and these UIs that don't require you to be a hardcore gamer and know how you know, the button system works, and, and I've got to hold this controller and do what now with it? But being able to just kind of stick something on your head, and go, oh, okay, it works. Um, it's not a really good it, example of that. Yeah. Like the, uh, yeah. So often when we've developed, we've uh, demoed. Sorry, we've found that uh, non-gamers are better uh, at the screwdriver segment. In mm -hmm. gamers, um, they like they see the screwdriver on the ground, they have to start pushing buttons, or uh, when they get the screwdriver, they start doing the kind of wee waggle thing, and it's like, <laughs> and we say like, it doesn't work. It's like it's a screwdriver. Use it like a screwdriver. And the non-gamers are like, oh, it's a screwdriver, I'm going to pick it up, I'm going to unscrew it, I'm going to move on. Um, because it's, quite, it's quite funny, everyone's got like that different uh, Yeah, because gamers come with so much baggage, and it's baggage we've built up. That's so true. They um, do. <laughs> they do. We have to think about that when we're, like, if we want to support gamepads, mm. uh, because suddenly, like, if you stick someone in VR and you give them a gamepad, if they're a gamer, they expect to use FPS controls. Yep. Yeah. So you have to like, really sort of nerf them to try and stop them from being able to do that. Whereas if you give a pad to a non-gamer, the only thing that they're going to do is like this exactly. or like this. Um, so um, we're almost in time for like a Q&A, but just really quickly, I want to obviously, this is the key to the panel, um, directing VR, Darius. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, just on the points that you were mentioning there, I think, you know, we had a lot of challenges with accessibility. We were supporting motion controllers. We've never done a motion controller game. Uh, pad controls, um, standing, seated. You know, there were a lot of variables there that we, uh, that we went through in terms of our focus testing as well. And uh, some of the videos I've seen as well are quite hilarious in terms of what, how people were using these uh, mechanics and stuff. And, um, yeah, I think iteration is really important if you're looking at these sort of um, making sure that... Uh, motion controllers or pad, and giving yourself enough time to iterate on that and making sure that um, you know, you've got enough time there to kind of fix those problems. And uh, yeah, we took a lot of time in kind of doing that sort of process. Um, I think for me, from sort of my role as an evangelist, I speak to a lot of new adopters of uh, sort of technology and, and unity. And uh, what the two things that I get asked the most are, um, so I've got this game idea or I've got this game... Um, demo, and I want to put VR in it, what should I do? And um, I think it's just really important to say, and it sounds obvious, but just because VR is the new thing right now doesn't mean that if you add it into your experience that you have, it's going to give it any emotional enrichment or any added immersion. There's a lot more to directing, designing, um, and having an appreciation of what you're trying to um, give the player, what you're trying to portray, than just putting VR in there. 
Um, and sort of building on that, the second thing I always get asked is, VR seems really technical, it seems really difficult, I've only got this set of skill sets, so how can I get into VR? But there's actually a lot of engines that you can use, like Unity, to <laughs> put those things together. Um, and also, uh, there's a lot of plugins and SDKs that can really help you with a lot of the intricacies. So audio is a big, big, big thing. Audio is really important now more than ever in sort of directing the player, setting the scene. Um, and sort of lighting and masking and those, and those sorts of things. And there's a lot of SDKs like the Google VR and the Oculus that have these um, audio intricacies already inbuilt for you to have as a base and play with. So, um, and just one last thing. <laughs> All these things, um, there's, no, there's no rule book. Yeah. I think yeah. you guys, I harassed you so much with my, uh, when I was doing my dissertation because you were trying so many new and innovative things, um, but at no point did you say, right, this is what you should be doing. I think it's really important to say that there's a lot of different ways to be doing VR, um, and it's a matter of us finding what's best for what you're creating. I think that's really important. I think it's just, yeah, to, to add to it, there's a, like a very short list of definitely don'ts. Um, <laughs> things like unmotivated movement, sudden changes in direction at high speed, stuff like that, that physiologically people cannot cope with and their body if they were in a real situation would feel sick and because in a virtual situation feel sick um and things like frame rate is god if you're not if you're not going at fast enough frame rate people just can't enjoy the experience outside of that it is a completely open playing field and all the all the rules have been built up with with cinema with games are are not necessarily applicable and you can you can add them to make people feel familiar and understand something if you want it to be uh, linking back something. But at the same time, it's all so new and so open. Actually, it's up to everyone to go out, try things, and solve the problem 10 different ways and just see which one sticks and which one you have the best time with and not be afraid to let what someone says, oh, it's a really stupid idea. Can we just try this? Like, Try it. See if it works. Because actually, the stuff we've solved where people are like, ah, oh, well, we just did this. And you're like, ah. Oh. Uh, okay, and then you suddenly, and that leads you down the path to a solution that really works. So there are, like you said, there are no steadfast rules. There's just like a, probably like a very short list of 10 commandments of don't, and then it's open and just go with it. In terms of actually like getting something working, it's mm. so quick. Mm. Like I made a Doctor Who experience in about six minutes. <laughs> I opened the scene in Unity, I dragged in the Steam VR plugin, I dragged in a model that I downloaded of the TARDIS, and then I was able to press play and I walked around it. There was not a single piece of code in there. Mm. And so like that accessibility as an artist is awesome. Like I can just model something, click and drag something in and press play it, and I can walk around it in VR. There's no excuses. <laughs> I'm just gonna add on to, to what was just said here, yeah. which is actually as well, um, experimenting and, and just trying it. There's, there's no replacement for just going out there and trying it, and there's no excuses, Kate just said. Um, but the other thing that's really, really important is collaborate. You know, it's not one insular person's solution that's going to be the, the, the way that we're going to do this going forward. You know, it's experiment and collaborate with as many different people from as many different, you know, diverse backgrounds as possible from different industries because actually you're going to find that there's so many interesting techniques and methodologies that they already have that can help you. That just go out there and collaborate. And if you see yeah. something good that's working, someone else, just nick it. Yeah. Just go with it. Like, <laughs> if someone solved your problem, Bobra. don't, be, don't be, don't be clever, just be like, we're fixing it. Yeah. Yeah, that, that works. That. Um, yeah. Okay, so I think we've got a few minutes left if anyone's got any questions. Oh, there we go. Oh my gosh. Hi, um, I'm an actor. So you were talking about um, treating it as a more theatrical experience, but I think 
what comes with that is rehearsal time. Mm -hmm. um, do you think there's going to be more of a collaboration between VR directors and actors in the future? Because at the moment, it's pressure, pressure. We've got to get this thing going. That comes with... Uh, the, the sad answer is no, and the good answer is yes. So it's honestly, with all these kind of things, is it's down to the, the factors that don't change. Time frame, budget, deliverables. Sadly, that always wins out. There are, but if they've got a big budget and they've got time and they want it to be as good as possible, yes. And I think rehearsal is essential. We, I've done stuff recently with the um, with National Opera using one of their principals uh, for a VR piece. And she's played this character a hundred times and she was perfect on every take. And actually, you're just adding variations to experiment with things in different ways. And when you have people like that in a mocap suit or on camera, you're going to get a better result. And I think rehearsal and practice is key. Um, in reality, we'll always have time and money for it. No, but I think it's but massively important. But this is why you should go, sorry. Yes, right. I was going to say, the interesting thing about the budget at the moment, of course, is because there's actually, it's still quite small take up in VR. I mean, it's big compared to the original iPhone launch, but still quite small. And so you haven't got the multi-million avatar budgets to allow you the flexibility at the moment. Okay, uh, next question. Um, two quick questions. Uh, one for Katie. I'm, well, I'm a, a writer and director in film. Mm -hmm. um, fascinated by VR. Um, you talked about a six-minute project that you did. What platform were you using? I would like to just play. Where do I go for that? Well, oh, as in, like, Unseen Diplomacy. So, yeah, like, our actual small project that we did, and we sort of jammed on really quickly. Uh, you can oh, sorry, did you mean the Doctor Who thing? Oh, right, the Doctor Who thing, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, right, I didn't release it. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, but he I just wants to know, so like, how did you do it? Were you using Unity or was you using yeah, Unreal? Literally using Unity. Like, I downloaded Unity. I literally downloaded the model, which I have in an asset, and then I click and drag it in. And then the Steam VR plugin is on the asset store. You download that. You, like, you can click and drag it in. In fact, or you can use one of the example scenes, and you, you literally press the play button. Honestly, it's that simple. Like... That's cool. And if, if you want to go into the video side of it, you can buy a 360 camera for £150. It's not great quality. It's stretched 4K video, but you don't have to do any post-production on it. You can literally put it on a tripod in the middle of a scene, play out the scene, see how it feels, view it back on YouTube 360 on your phone without a headset, and for under £200, you're up and running and starting to learn the video side of it as well. Mm -hmm. Wow, thanks. And, and Tanya, very quickly, um, you're the creator of VR Writers Room. Um, yes, for my sins. So, what did you do? Okay. so having having actually pitched a, a VR project yes. to to somebody who who was working in VR but didn't quite understand the difference between traditional theatre or traditional film mm -hmm. and VR, can you give us, in the same way that you guys are done with directing, mm -hmm. um, a quick little do's and don'ts of writing for VR? <laughs> uh, okay, that's a whole other session. And, um, we, we do do this thing called the VR Writers Room. Um, and so we, it's all available online, actually. You can just kind of go to digitaljam.com and it's on there. Um, so all of the research is there. There's four hours worth of podcasting, a 15-page white paper, and a lovely infographic for the people who don't want to read or listen. Um, but uh, in terms of the basic do's and don'ts, um, so we... We narrow it down to four key pillars of discussion, which is basically looking at uh, audience and focusing on the importance of audience and who is your audience for the piece. Uh, looking at uh, the 
building, uh, world building, so looking at the context of um, actually the universe and the environment that you're creating and how you're writing for that. So really, really simple example is for a lot of people who experience a, a game VR environment, let's say, for example, you're in a, a world, you walk in, there's a newspaper, you pick up the newspaper, you see a story for today, so let's say today is Monday, and you see that. That's now an expectation that you have set in the user's mind. So if they're wandering around the world and later on in the world, they pick up another newspaper, and it's three days later in the context of the time of the game, they're going to expect to see Wednesday's story on that newspaper. So it's the, the, the detail of consistency is quite important from a writing perspective. Um, so that's the, one of the other verticals. And then the other one is technology and technique, because actually different writers use different software and different techniques for how they write. So if you're from TV and film, you write in a very different way to maybe how a games writer writes to how a theatre writer writes. And that unifying the terminology, unifying what software that you use to actually convey and articulate that to others. So there's a couple of different techniques that people are using at the moment. Um, one of the most common ones is uh, actually <laughs> the quadrant uh, example, which is to divide up your, your script and your dialogue into four different quadrants so that you're giving the, uh, the, the director clarity on actually where the action is happening within the quadrant. Um, Catch me later, I'll explain that in more detail. Um, the other way to do that is by good old-fashioned storyboarding. And actually, comic book artists and comic book writers are some of the best people at articulating what the, the, the narrative of VR should be because they're, they're really used to doing that in, 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 a, you know, in, in terms of the comic strips. Um, and then the other piece is narrative and understanding the um, context of narrative because... Um, you know, there's, there's, there's no such thing as, as uh, you know, as... Uh, I know that this has been a phrase that has been coined a long time ago, the empathy machine. And it's, it's not really that there is an empathy machine. It's, that it's not the device that creates empathy. And so there's a lot of people who are doing VR because they should, you know, oh, yeah, we can do it in VR. It'll add some kind of emotion and empathy to the piece because it's in VR. And it's like, no, yeah. actually, narrative is the piece that, that actually drives the engine of empathy, not the device. So as a medium, understanding the, the importance of narrative. So. Um, and just the other thing is to have a, a damn good reason why you're doing it in VR and not traditionally, because actually yes. shooting 360 or making game engine mm -hmm. is a lot harder, uh, mm -hmm. can be more expensive, and the, the challenges of storytelling are very different. If, if there's a reason that it's not going to be an establishing shot, an over-the-shoulder shot, uh, you know, a, mm -hmm. a pan, a track, what, what is unique about that story or the way, the way in which you're telling that story, the point of view of the story, that means it should be in VR and wouldn't actually be stronger and easier in, in traditional 2D. So there's, there's two things I will say. First of all, I'm going to follow up on what Liz said before, which is just because you can doesn't mean you should. And so many people want to do VR just because it's a thing they can do, and you shouldn't necessarily do that. The second thing is, is that I'm actually borrowing this from one of the Robs, Rob Morgan, actually, you know Rob, um, which is that the amount of, of VR scripts that start with, we open on, <laughs> okay, just just to reiterate, it's VR, it's 360. You can't open on anything because anybody can look anywhere. So it's knowing right from the very beginning of your script process, this is a whole different thing. It's a whole different ball game, people. So maybe just don't write that because it's clearly a red flag. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, just start with, just write, you are in. Yeah, <laughs> you are in. Um, so I think we've, uh, we've run out of time now. I'm sure the guys are going to be around. Uh, are you hanging around for a little bit for mm. questions afterwards? Maybe, if you're nice and buy them drinks or something, they'll stay. But can we have a big round of applause for all of our panellists? That was great.